70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hola amigos, soy Hugo Longhi de Rosario, Argentina. Hi, my name is Hugo Longhi and I'm from Rosario, Argentina. I started to listen to KBS World Radio in July 1990 and I have so many fond memories. One of the most unforgettable memories is my visit to Korea in 1996 at the invitation of KBS. It was a great opportunity for me to get to know more about the very modern country with thousands of years of tradition still intact. Of all the wonderful experiences, the visit to Panmujeom on the border of South and North Korea was very touching. As I tuned into KBS World Radio, I got to learn a lot about the country in the Far East that had been unfamiliar to me and became interested in everything that is going on over there. I hope KBS World will continue its shortwave radio transmission. I wish everyone good health and happiness and send greetings from Argentina. Thank you. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Tuesday, the 7th of February, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Woo. The death toll from the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria has ballooned to over 5,000. South Korea has pledged to swiftly provide humanitarian support. We'll have the latest in news briefing shortly. Tensions between Washington and Beijing have risen once again after the US shot down a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon on Saturday. We delve into the repercussions for our in-depth today. And coming up for Touch Basin's Hole, we meet a visual artist who takes everyday objects to create something new in an art form she calls household surrealism. Let's begin, Career 24. The death toll has continued to rise in Turkey and Syria after the massive earthquake on Monday. It has now surpassed 5,000, and sadly, the number is still expected to rise. So far, no South Korean casualties, but President Yoon Suk-yeol instructed the government to produce active measures to provide assistance to the disaster-hit nation. For more on this story and the rest of the day's headlines, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, jang so President Yun has called for prompt transportation of rescue personnel and medical supplies aboard military planes to support the quake-stricken Turkey. Can you tell us a bit more about some of the measures that are being prepared? Sure thing. According to the top office on Tuesday, he ordered the foreign ministry and the South Korean diplomatic mission in the country to cooperate with Turkish authorities to provide needed support. You know, so urged the foreign ministry to lead coordination with related ministries on additional support. Uh, his press secretary, Kim Inez, said the government will dispatch them 60 rescue workers. The president said Turkey didn't hesitate to send troops during the Korean War. In early Tuesday, Yoon expressed condolences via social media to those who have lost their loved ones in the disaster. He emphasized South Korea is prepared to assist the Blood Brothers, Turkey, in every way. 
In fact, I understand South Korea plans to dispatch a 110-member disaster relief team in total to Turkey. Eh? This is believed to be the largest contingent of its kind ever sent to a disaster area overseas from Korea. That's right, Zhang The foreign ministry announced Tuesday a 60-member team, including officials of the National Fire Agency's 119 Emergency Rescue Squad and the Korea International Cooperation Agency will join 50 personnel from the defense ministry, so that total makes 110 members overall. Korea will also deliver medical supplies by military transport aircraft, and the team will consult with rescue workers arriving from different countries, as well as the UN, to help determine their duties and area of operation. The decisions were made during an interagency meeting hosted by Foreign Minister Park Jin on Tuesday. Seoul will also offer $5 million in emergency humanitarian assistance to Turkey and prepare an aid package for Syria as well, as soon as international agencies announce what the war-torn countries need. Now, the ministry also set up an emergency task force on earthquake relief at UN's request. South Korea decided to provide $300,000 in humanitarian aid to Iran, which suffered a 5.9 magnitude tremor on January 28th. Yes, we'll look to keep track of the developments from the region throughout the rest of the week. Let's turn to some other news headlines now. A local court has ordered the government to compensate a Vietnamese national who lost family members in a civilian massacre carried out by South Korean troops during the Vietnam War. Can you give us more details? Well, Tuesday's ruling by the Seoul Central District Court marks the first recognition of the government's responsibility for damages in connection to the historical event. The court sided with the 63-year-old plaintiff, Nguyen Thi Tan, demanding 30 million won, or nearly 24,000 U.S. dollars, plus damages incurred due to the delay. Nguyen filed the suit in April 2020 on the grounds that Korean troops killed some 70 villagers, including her family, in the town of Dien Ban in Guangnam province during the Vietnam War in 1968. The Seoul government contended that Viet Cong combatants could have disguised themselves as South Korean troops, that such an act by actual South Korean soldiers would have been justifiable within the context of guerrilla warfare. The statute of limitations was another point of contention, as the government insisted that it had expired, while the plaintiff argued the case constitutes a situation where that notion cannot be applied. Meanwhile, prosecutors investigating corruption allegations surrounding the Wide and Daejangdong development projects launched a raid of locations linked to another project in Baekhyundong in Seongnam, Gyeonggi province. Can you tell us more about this as well? On Tuesday, the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office sent investigators to Seongnam City Hall, the Seongnam Development Corporation, and Asia Developer to obtain evidence. Around 40 locations are searched, including residences of two close associates of DP leader Lee Jae-myung, former Korea Housing Technology Chief Kim In-sub, and the head of Asia Developer, surnamed Chung. The prosecution suspects the Seongnam City government granted administrative favors to Asia developers back in 2015, which took the lead on a high-profile apartment project in the Baekhyundong area. And the raid comes as the DP chief was summoned for a second round of questioning by the prosecution over his alleged role in the development projects while serving as mayor of the city. He said he will appear on Friday for the second round of questioning over his alleged role in the Sangnam development scandal. According to DP Chief Spokesperson Ano Young on Tuesday, he plans to attend the session at around 11 a.m. 
following the party's Supreme Council meeting. The spokesperson expressed regret that the prosecution demanded E come on a weekday when his time and attention is needed in party and state affairs. E is accused of helping private investors reap 440 billion won or around 350 million U.S. dollars in profits from Sangnam City's development projects while incurring losses for the city when he was mayor there. He was previously grilled for over 12 hours on January 28th. Let's shift gears now to North Korea. The regime convened a meeting of the ruling Workers' Party's Central Military Commission to discuss ways to perfect the country's readiness posture for war. So what do we have about the session on Monday? Well, the Korean Central News Agency reported on Tuesday that Kim Jong-un presided over the meeting at the headquarters of the Party Central Committee. Uh, The meeting reportedly covered major military and political tasks for the year, as well as long-term issues concerning the orientation for army building. Also included discussions on expanding and intensifying the operation and combat drills of the Korean People's Army to cope with the current situation. The KCN added that the ways to prepare better be better prepared for war is also being discussed. The meeting comes amid reports the regime is preparing for a military parade to mark the 75th anniversary of the founding of its armed forces on Wednesday. Let's turn back to headlines for South Korea. The whole city government has postponed the enforcement of an administrative execution to dismantle a memorial altar set up in front of City Hall by the families of the Itaewon crowd crush victims. So can you give us an update on this situation? This is an emotional issue that's being blocked by uh, administrative uh, regulations and rules that the government must abide by. On Tuesday, Seoul Vice Mayor for Political Affairs Oh Shin-hwan said the city is postponing that decision until the end of this week. This is in consideration of the family's grief, even if they did abruptly and illegally establish the unauthorized altar at Seoul Plaza. The vice mayor emphasized dismantling the unapproved altar is an appropriate course of action by relevant administrative agency. He requested the families propose a new location by Sunday. Earlier, Seoul City had given the families a deadline of 1 p.m. on Monday and then 1 p.m. Wednesday to take down the altar. Right, but looks like the discussions are continuing for now. Moving on, the government plans to open the domestic foreign exchange market to overseas institutions from as early as the second half of 2024 and gradually shift to 24-hour operations. So can you tell us more about these plans? Well, the decision to open the market and initially extend trading by 10 and a half hours was announced on Tuesday. Part of plans by the Finance Ministry and the Bank of Korea to restructure the foreign currency market. To increase access to the market, the government will allow entry by overseas institutions without requiring a local branch or an account with a local institution. Authorization will be based on adequate liquidity, identification information and a fulfillment of obligation agreement. Short-term speculative entities, including hedge funds, will not be permitted. To guarantee effectiveness, market closing hours will be extended from 3.30 p.m. to 2 a.m. Authorities are considering round-the-clock operations as well. The government plans to submit a revision to the foreign exchange transaction law by Q3 and conduct a trial run next year. In other news, a Seoul court has sentenced a former subway worker charged with killing a female colleague to 40 years in prison. This was a high-profile case that made headlines last year. Can you tell us more about the ruling? Well, on Tuesday, the Seoul Central District Court also found Chun Ju-hwan guilty of stalking and illegally filming the victim prior to murdering her. He will also be required to wear ankle monitor for 15 years. The court ruling comes after the prosecution demanded the death penalty last month. 
As the 31-year-old suspect is highly likely to commit radical crimes such as murder again, given his self-centered thinking and anger management issues. John, a former subway station worker, was arrested in September for killing a female colleague inside a public restroom in line number two's Shindang subway station, where she was working. He allegedly killed her in reprisal after she reported him for stalking her. The murder occurred a day before the court was scheduled to rule in the stalking case, with Chun allegedly expecting heavy punishment. And finally, the South Korean government has implemented emergency fine dust reduction measures for the capital area and other central and eastern regions through Tuesday night. Kintas Mu. Well, for the metro area, central Chungcheong region and eastern parts of Kangwon province, as of 6 a.m., the Environment Ministry issued attention, which is the lowest ultrafine dust crisis alert level in a four-tier scale. The density of ultrafine dust particles smaller than 2.5 micrometers in diameter is forecast to stay in the bad range between 36 and 75 micrograms per cubic meter in the affected regions. Emergency reduction measures were also issued for the second consecutive day for the capital region and the central administrative city of Sejong. Under the reduction measures, heavy fine dust emitters, including grade 5 diesel vehicles, will be banned. Construction sites must readjust or cut down operating hours. Ultrafine dust level is projected to go down Wednesday afternoon. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thanks for having me. Relations between the United States and China have taken a turn for the worse once again after the U.S. military on Saturday shot down a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon that had been flying over the country for several days. China, however, called the balloon a civilian airship intended for scientific research and denounced the downing as an overreaction. How big of a blow would the balloon saga be to an already fraught Washington-Beijing relations that have been in a downward spiral for years? To get some expert analysis on this, we have joining us on the line now Professor David Alate from the John Hopkins University, Nanjing University Centre for Chinese and American Studies. Professor, hello. Thank you for being on the show today. Oh, hi. Thank you for having me. So the US shot down the balloon on Saturday, claiming they had been spying on key military locations across the country. Uh, in a statement, the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that an F-22 supported by other fighter jets successfully brought down the high-altitude Chinese surveillance balloon in skies over the coast of uh, South Carolina. That was upon orders from President Joe Biden. So, Professor, what was your immediate reaction to the U.S. destruction of the balloon? Do you think it was inevitable? Uh, well, it wasn't inevitable, but highly likely. Uh, and in in fact, it was it, it sort of played out as I expected because they they wouldn't want to bring it down over land because they'd want to recover the the uh, the apparatus that the balloon was carrying, uh, and they would have a much better chance of recovering over water than land. But of course, you know, there was a lot of criticism from the Republicans that. You know, Biden allowed the the balloon to traverse the entire U.S. after they discovered it over this Montana missile base. Um, so there was a lot of political pressure to to down it, hmm. you know, uh, over land. But I think uh, the, the the Pentagon 
you know, wanted to get all the information they could from this, so that's why they, they did what they did. China accused the U.S. of a quote-unquote overreaction and that the uh, indiscriminate use of military force uh, was used. So Beijing insists it was an unmanned weather surveillance aircraft that had veered off course. Uh, what do you make of uh, China's uh, statements there? Well, uh, it doesn't sound very credible, actually, because, you know, now this whole event has uh, kicked off um, uh, a lot of research and analysis and uh, looking back at, at past, uh, past balloon events. And so it looks as though it's part of a, a very large and well-developed uh, balloon surveillance program that the military has been developing and they deploy these balloons through civilian front companies. That and this is a report out of Japan uh, that's that's reporting that. But the U.S. side has has a, a record and reports of uh, earlier balloon intrusions. So I think this time they, they, I think this time they're and you know because the public was so aware of it too that that they had to, they had to bring it down and take a close look at this balloon. Right, but uh, China has said that the balloon was a meteorological aircraft intended for scientific research that was uh, blown off course. Uh, the claim was dismissed by U.S. officials. Uh, you're agreeing with uh, the assessment by U.S. officials then. Uh, does this mean that the balloon well, I, I, could be think, seen as a provocation? US, I think the U.S. side in this has got a little more credibility than the Chinese do uh, because uh, simply because of the, the way the balloon came in, uh, it, it came, it, first of all, you know, uh, civilian weather balloons aren't configured like this one is. They, they look different. They're differently arrayed. And then the, the flight path of this thing uh, was, uh, you know, very well laid out to go over key, you know, sensitive military bases. And this this balloon was maneuverable. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, some hapless... Uh, weather balloon. Mm. It, it apparently has propellers on the apparatus, and is able to maneuver uh, going up and down. So, uh, to take advantage of air currents uh, going in the right direction, at least this is what you know reports are saying. So, it, it sounds like it's a surveillance. It sounds more like a surveillance balloon than a than a weather one. And you know, surveillance balloons have a long history, right? Uh, mm. Going all the way back to World War One. So it's it's not. Um, it's it's not it's not unlikely, and in any case, uh, sending a balloon or having a balloon go over the the territory of another country uh, is is a violation of the country's sovereignty. Mm. So, um, well, you know, on that note, it may how... have been accidental, but they have no right to do it. Right? How serious uh, provocation is this? Uh, I'm not sure if there's a scale as such, but uh, China must have known that uh, the balloon would be spotted. No, I don't think you can take that for granted because uh, it was flying at such a high altitude, uh, and it, 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 it's sort of not a very well-known or expected kind of intrusion. Uh, so that you know, it's very likely that this you know this one uh, happened to be the one that caught a lot of public attention. But apparently, in the Trump administration, there were three other balloon balloons balloons that came in over the U.S. that 
uh, were noted, but not they didn't attract attention. Mm. Uh, so it may be that back then they might have thought these things were, in fact, weather balloons or something or some 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 uh, accidental accidental event. Mm. But but because of this pattern of events and because this one, uh, you know, loitered uh, over over this this missile base. That was very suspicious, and so so that, that's how the whole brouhaha started. Well, in response to this incident, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, abruptly cancelled his uh, planned weekend trip to China, which was aimed at easing tensions between the two countries. Uh, speaking at the State Department after cancelling his trip, Blinken said the presence of the Chinese balloon was an irresponsible act and a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law. Professor, what were you perhaps expecting from the trip initially, and what do you read into the abrupt cancellation of it? Well, I think um, given the political uproar in the U.S. over this, uh, he had no choice, or the Biden administration had no choice but to cancel it. He did talk to um, the Politburo member, uh, Wang Yi, a former foreign minister. He's been promoted uh, to head foreign affairs in the in the in the party center, um, and in this conversation with Wang Yi, he said that he would try to reschedule the visit as soon as possible. Mm. But um, I, I don't really see that happening because um, the Chinese side has uh, has issued a statement that was very belligerent and casting blame on the U.S. Uh, for this event. Uh, when in fact it's the U.S. is the victim here uh, of of, uh, of uh, uh, misbehavior and a violation of international law. So the fact that it, the, it's turned into a sort of a shouting match now, and, and this is going to make it even harder to resolve uh, the Republicans in Cong- now control Congress, the House. So they're going to be uh, running hearings and generating a lot of anti-China news. And then, you know, the in March, the National People's Congress is going to happen, so that the timing is, is wrong for a visit then. And there will be additional sanctions coming down on China because the Wall Street Journal recently reported that Chinese state-owned enterprises have been helping uh, the Russian uh, Russian military mm-hmm. uh, rebuild rebuild capabilities that 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 that, that they've lost because of the war. You know, so. Um, you can expect more sanctions to be coming from the U.S. side. So I don't really see, in the near term, a window of opportunity for Blinken to reschedule his trip. Does it show how fragile uh, the relationship is at the moment uh, that Blinken yeah. cancelled this trip so abruptly? Well, uh, I, I think under the circumstances, it's understandable why he did. I mean, he, he, he couldn't very well go to Beijing while this balloon was still traveling over the United States. So, uh, and, and also the Chinese side, their attitude was uh, basically to say it's a civilian weather balloon, there's no military mission at all, and that, you know, we're innocent and, you know, you, you're guilty of, of uh, malfeasance. You, you know, when you have that sort of dialogue going on, the, there's no way the U.S. Secretary of State is going to step foot in Beijing. Right, so the circumstances made it untenable for perhaps a yeah, diplomatic I mean, solution. Two, you know, the Chinese side bears some responsibility for this too, you know. Mm. If they really wanted the Blinken visit to come off 
uh, well, they would not have uh, uh, put a weather balloon, even if it was a weather balloon, a balloon up that would travel over the United States. Sure. Meanwhile, the South Korean government has sided with the U.S. over its decision to shoot down the balloon, urging China to explain the incident in a transparent manner. Uh, on Monday, an official from the foreign ministry said that it is Seoul's position that infringement of territorial sovereignty of another state cannot be tolerated under international laws. Uh, how do you think Seoul's stance on the balloon incident will be received in Beijing? How do you think this could even potentially affect the Seoul-Beijing relationship? Well, first of all, I think South Korea, you know, just, just had these North Korean drones <laughs> come into your airspace, right? So it's very understandable that the South Koreans would want to emphasize this principle. Uh, now, the the Chinese side may, uh, you know, they I'm sure they, they will uh, take offense. They don't like being criticized by the smaller neighbors, uh, even tangentially. Uh, but I think the important thing here is that South Korea is taking a, a stand on principle, right? It's the principle of mm. the inviolability of of, of 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 state sovereignty and territory and territory. And so, uh, honestly, it's a, it's a kind of a stand that that every UN member is entitled to take. So, uh, uh, if China chooses to interpret this as being criticism, well, you know, it then it's likely to do so because it expects South Korea to be deferential to China, right? So. I I, th I would imagine China will uh, not be happy uh, about that statement. Mm. Well, I guess we'll see if uh, Beijing does express that unhappiness in any further ways moving forward. Uh, and finally, going back to U.S.-China relations then, what do you think lies ahead for uh, the relationship going forward? How much of a setback is this going to be for any sign of uh, improved relations? Well, you know, it's, it's, it was very bad. You know, the, the Chinese side, if they were really interested in a reset, uh, they should have done everything possible to make sure nothing could have interfered with, the, with this trip. And instead, we have this provocation. Uh, and, you know, what's coming next uh, at some point is, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the new House Speaker is likely to, to go to Taiwan, which is going to basically be a repeat, except even worse, of the Pelosi visit. Uh, and there's a whole slew of other issues uh, between the U.S. and China that is causing friction. Uh, so um, this was, this, you know, this could have been really the last good opportunity to sort of uh, put, a, put a floor under the relationship, which is what, you know, Blinken was trying to do. Mm to put a floor under under the, the relationship so that it wouldn't sink below a certain level. But um, that has failed. And, you know, you have to wonder why China, who in China, thought that this might be a good idea to, to do something like this at this moment. Mm. And the question, one question is, did Xi Jinping know about it? Or, or, or are there elements in the Chinese government that are so against the U.S. that they thought that, a provocation like this uh, would be, you know, worth doing to send the right signal mm. or even to sabotage the visit. You know, I don't understand how a rational government would have done anything like this just before an, a visit of this importance. Right, indeed. So it see, still seems there are questions remaining over, the, over this incident and how it came to be. 
Well, yeah. Professor, we'll have to leave it there. We've been speaking to Professor David Alasair from the John Hopkins University, Nanjing University Centre for Chinese and American Studies. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 13.52 points, or 0.55% on Tuesday, to close the day at 2,451.71. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, gaining 11.46 points, or 1.51%, to close the day at 772.79. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 2.51 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,255.31. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Korea Trending, our daily segment, where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, Diane Yu, to bring us those stories. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. It's good to see you, too. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? First, we'll talk about the South Korean government's plan to increase the young labor force by giving them incentives. Next, we'll go over why the Korea Tourism Organization gifted a couple living in New York a trip to South Korea. Third, let's find out who has become the new head coach of the South Korean National Compound Archery Team. Okay, so let's look closer at that first story then. What can you tell us? Have you heard of the term NEET, N-E-E-T? Okay. Well, it's an acronym for young people who are not employed in education or training. Right, so N-E-E-T, not employed in education or training, okay? Right. Having a strong labor force is a great asset to a country, but it seems like the size of Korea's labor force is shrinking. According to a survey by Statistics Korea, the number of the so-called NEETs soared from 480,000 in 2017 to 630,000 in 2021. And the seriousness of youth unemployment can be seen in that half of them are in their 20s and 30s. To solve this problem, the Ministry of Employment and Labor's Youth Challenge Support Project will come into effect starting this month. This project provides financial aid of up to 3 million won, which is about $2,400, to help young job seekers. Okay, so financial aid in order for those who aren't working to get work, Mm -hmm. to encourage them to get work. Uh, But I understand that there are strings attached. Can you tell us more? How does it help the younger generation then? The Ministry of Employment and Labor has selected 35 local governments to carry out the project. The program encourages young people to find a job by providing services such as health checkups, personality tests, career uh, consulting, and job experience to those who gave up for looking for jobs. Initially, a trial of the project started in 2021. They can participate in a short-term program for one to two months and receive financial aid of 500,001. If they complete a mid to long-term program, that lasts for more than five months, they can receive up to three million won. The prices, uh, the price ranges from about four hundred dollars to two thousand four hundred dollars. And this year, a total of eight thousand people are planned to be supported through this program. Right. So you actually need to start looking for jobs, or at least get involved in programs to mm-hmm. help you do that to be eligible for these uh, funds. Right. Uh, but only eight thousand will be able to receive it. So uh, people, we need to act fast. Right. Who is eligible and how can they apply for the program? 
Among those who can participate in the projects are youths who have given up on job hunting, who have not undergone job hunting or vocational training for the past six months, and who have defected from North Korea. Those who wish to participate can apply by visiting the project operating organizations such as local governments in person or through the Labor Ministry's job portal called WorkNet at www.worknet.go.kr. Yes, part of the reason some give up on job hunting is because they might feel that their resume is not strong enough for the mm-hmm. jobs that they want, but cannot afford to take courses and such to improve it. So this plan is a way to help encourage young people to do that, to be able for them to do that. It can hopefully uh, help ease uh, a little the very concerning and growing issue of uh, youth unemployment in Korea currently. Yes. Okay, let's move to on. Let's move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? When Mother Nature hits you, there's nothing you can do as humans become powerless. And that's what happened to nine South Korean tourists as they were trapped in heavy snow in the U.S. last December. However, thankfully, there was a couple who opened their home to these tourists for two nights and three days, Alexander and Andrea Campania. And now to thank the couple, the Korea Tourism Organization has invited them to South Korea. Yes, I remember this story being covered, uh, especially on U.S. news outlets Mm -hmm. at the time, reporting the Good Samaritans deeds. Uh, For our listeners who may not be aware of the story, can you walk us through what happened? Sure. Mr. and Mrs. Campania, knowing that a snowstorm was coming, had stocked up her pantry to wait the blizzard out in Williamsville, New York. Then on December 23rd, they heard a knock on the door, and when they opened... Two men were asking for a shovel to dig their van out of a ditch they got, as they got stuck in heavy snow. They were part of a group of nine South Korean tourists that were on their way to Niagara Falls from Washington, D.C. However, it was impossible for the van to drive through the harsh weather conditions. So the couple invited the tour group into their home and spent the weekend with them until the storm cleared, having Christmas feasts and drinking wine together. Right. It was incredibly generous and a very heartwarming story to welcome nine people right. uh, to their home over the yes. uh, Christmas break. So uh, now Mr. and Mrs. Campania, they're coming to Seoul then. Right. What a wonderful development to the story as well. Mm-hmm. What's on their itinerary? Well, the couple is scheduled to visit Korea on May 14th and stay for a week. According to the Korea Tourism Organization, the Campania couple will reunite with the nine Korean tourists. They helped visit major tourist attractions in Korea, as well as experience various cultural activities such as making kimchi and attending other Korean food cooking classes. Park Jae-sok, head of the New York branch of the Korea Tourism Organization, said, quote, we invited them as a token of gratitude to the American couple and show the world that Korea always returns mm-hmm. kindness and favors, end quote. Yes, well, I hope they have a wonderful time in Korea. They really do deserve it. Yes. Okay, let's move on to our last story, and it comes from the sports section. Can you tell us more? The new head coach for South Korea's national archery compound team has been announced. On Monday, the Korea Archery Association said that it has appointed Rio Wild, a 49-year-old American, as the new head coach for the team. With the goal of strengthening the compound team's performance this year ahead of the important international competitions such as the World Championships and the Hangzhou Asian Games, Coach Wild will be in charge of overall guidance such as technology, equipment, and psychology. Uh, the coach joined the team, compound national team right away on the same day of the announcement at the team's field training held in Salt Lake City, USA. 
Yes, uh, we all know how incredibly dominant Korea is in the Olympics, mm-hmm. uh, Olympic archery, particularly women. Right. So some of our listeners may be thinking why a foreign coach would be needed, but mm-hmm. actually understand it's a different form of archery mm-hmm. than the one we're talking about today. In the Olympics, they use a recurve bow, mm-hmm. whereas uh, Coach Wild will be in charge of the compound bow team. Yes. So there are uh, differences, and compound bows are... There are compound bow competitions at the World Championships and the Asian Games. Mm-hmm. So uh, his expertise uh, will be brought in for that. What do we know about Coach Wild? Well, Rigo Wild took up archery in 1992. He first represented the U.S. senior team in 1995 and has a number of medals in international competitions under his belt from his time as a player. This includes eight gold medals at the World Archery Indoor Championships and three World Archery Championship titles. Wild was also ranked world number one in compound archery on June 27th, 2006. Even after he'd retired, he proved his ability to become a teacher and leader by nurturing excellent players in the U.S. national team. Well, it's certainly exciting news for the Korean national team as they have a coach with an illustrious career Mm -hmm. to try and help steer the players in the right direction. And it must be great news for Wilde himself, as uh, this sounds like it'll be a good challenge. Right. How have the relevant parties responded? Chang Yong-sul, vice president of the Korea Archery Association, welcomed the news, saying that, I hope Korean archery will develop to the next level with the appointment of Coach Wilde, who is a world-class athlete and leader. And Coach Wilde thanked the association decision and said, it's an honor to be part of the world's strongest archery team. Wilde added that he will do his best to bring out the potential of Korea's national compound team players to the fullest and achieve the best results. Yes, we'll see how the team fares under his tutelage. Mm-hmm. That's all for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. The London-based visual artist Helga Stencil is known for creating whimsical works using everyday items, a style that she calls household surrealism. From a cute puppy made of lettuce to a horse composed of clothes hanging on a wash line, she uses mundane items to create something new and challenge what the viewer is seeing. And Korean art lovers have been getting a chance to experience that through her first exhibition in Seoul on view at the CXC Art Museum. To catch a glimpse into her creative mind, she joins us now via video call for Touch Basin's Hall. Ms. Denzel, hello, and it's uh, great to have you on the show today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, should I say good afternoon? Yeah, yes, uh, in Korea it is uh, the evening. But yes, uh, good morning in the UK. Okay, so I gave a brief description of uh, what you do, but can you introduce... Uh, for our listeners and viewers, in your own words, uh, the works, uh, your works and what you do and how you became a visual artist as well. Oh, I've been seeing things and drawing things um, since I was about five years old. And, uh, you know, as a child, I would be in bed looking at my carpet, looking at the floor um, next to my bed. And I would be seeing things. I would be seeing dragons in the patterns of the carpet and I would be seeing creatures in the knots of the wood. And um, it took me another 20 years to actually 
believe that this might be interesting to other people and to start sharing that on my social media. Um, but yeah, I, I've been drawing ever since I was very little. Right, so it's always been in you. You've had a creative and imaginative mind ever since you were young then. Uh, but it seems like from what you're saying, uh, you had perhaps the spark of surrealism in your works ever since you were young as well then. Oh, yes. And as um, Breton uh, defines surrealism, um, it's a movement that aims to release the potential of subconscious mind. So I guess... Um, I was always trying to see more and my consciousness was telling me that there definitely um, that there definitely is more magic and more wonder in everyday life. And I have to say that my childhood wasn't particularly exciting. I used to spend a lot of time in the village with my grandmother and we only had two TV channels to watch and she didn't have any books or magazines to read at all. So I, I learned to entertain myself from a very young age. And I think my subconsciousness was just telling me, look, Helga, you need to start doing something for yourself. Otherwise, it's just too boring. Um, so I guess, yeah, I, um, this is what my mind did to help me survive in those conditions. Right. So in your mind, you created a space, for, I guess, uh, for find some sort of escape uh, from your early life. And so you are best known now for turning everyday household objects into playful characters and scenes, especially with your uh, surrealist spin on uh, common household items, such as uh, clothing items, uh, kitchen utensils, books, and even bread. They're all brought to life. How did this form of art start for you? Um, you mentioned escaping from reality, but here I have to slightly disagree. In order to escape from reality, you also need to be present present in reality 100% because it is by being present and looking very carefully at, was, at what was in front of me and mm. what still is in front of me. It is only by doing that they can, that I can discover those uh, magical worlds, those magical creatures. So to me, it is really about paying attention to oh, what's around and really appreciating it all and taking it all in and for me it's a meditation almost like I sit down without an intention to see something I always sit down um, and you know all I want is just to look at things and I, I, I always say that I stare at things longer than socially acceptable and that annoys my family a lot in the restaurant setting particularly I might just stare at a slice of bread for minutes <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is where it begins. I think I'm just uh, genuinely fascinated by colors, textures and shapes of the mm. world around us. And uh, once I um, take a closer look at something, I might see something else in the end. It's not always the case, but it's always sure. um, time very well spent for me. Sure. But what was the first work? Where did it start for you, uh, this, this journey as an artist? For, for, for uh, the, the well, surre uh, household surrealism? Um, one of the first uh, works which I think uh, really started my path as an artist was uh, Perfect Fit. Uh, it's an image of a corn shot next to some pieces of Lego um, with a little Lego head inside. Mm. I think this was where I realised that actually I'm onto something interesting um, on my social media and I'm beginning to 
build something like I'm beginning to build an exciting new path for myself because I used to work in art um, all the time in art design advertising like I've been in creative industries all my life and it was only about seven years ago that um, I realized that I could be doing things on my own independently as an artist. Sure. I, I think I saw that work uh, on your website. It is a piece of uh, corn on the cob, uh, but the kernels are uh, Lego heads, uh, right? The, uh, uh, in the shape of Lego heads. Yeah. You're right. It is quite arresting. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about the process? So you said you sit down and stare at objects. So it kind of comes naturally then, your inspiration. Uh, so it's less more about finding inspiration rather than perhaps a strict planning oh yeah definitely and i have a sketchbook full of notes and little drawings so um when i have a moment later i might say yes now i want to properly photograph this idea or you know start looking for clothes to execute that idea but it all starts with an observation which then goes onto a piece of paper or in my sketchbook and then someday when I think that the idea is strong or when I think that it's fitting, um, I might just um, make it happen and photograph it. And the process can, can be quite long, especially with clothesline animals, because very often I need to source a particular clothing item um, to make sure that it looks exactly uh, as I imagined. Um, and it can take weeks, it can take months even. So it's a bit unpredictable with clothesline animals, but I, I love it. it. I love the process. I love the, the, the constant creative search. I think it's great. Right, so the inspiration comes uh, randomly, but the work you put into it afterwards is, is a very uh, focused uh, project than it sounds like. Uh, the works, uh, yeah. they're really de delightful. I, I think uh, they bring... A smile to the viewer uh, when look at it, and it just makes people also wonder how you come up with uh, such ideas. Uh, your photo exhibition is currently being held in Seoul, and it will run through March 1st. Uh, can you give us more details about this exhibition? Oh, it's a wonderful exhibition. It's a fantastic space. I think it's over 600 square metres. It's beautiful, and uh, what was interesting for me um, is that it's held in an exhibition space inside of a shopping mall. We don't have anything like that in the UK. Um, we have proper museums and galleries here. And there it's so nice that people can just um, run around, watch a movie and then go and see an exhibition with their children. Mm. Um, it just makes it so much easier and it makes it very accessible. And this is what my art is about. What I'm trying to say with what I do is art is everywhere. We just need to um, really take a moment and appreciate it. So, yeah, I would be really happy if our viewers today um, go and see the exhibition because the team in Seoul um, have put a lot of effort into making it as beautiful as it is. Yes, I believe the exhibition has been on view since November. What was it like to be in Seoul to see uh, that exhibition opening and what's the reaction been like so far? Oh, it was, um, for me, it was such a treat to come to Seoul. Um, the time of the year was perfect. I love autumn and those, you know, red, orange, yellow trees, they were amazing. And I love the people. Um, and I think everything was wonderful. The food was delightful. Uh, <laughs> and 
<laughs> this was the very first time that I came to Seoul. So I think I'm still a little bit overwhelmed and I can't really say, uh, I can't really um, name one thing that uh, amazed me most. I think it was a just delightful experience all in all. And it was wonderful to meet so many visitors. It was uh, particularly nice to meet little children and do workshops with them uh, where they could build their own clothesline animals. Um, yeah, it was it was very nice. Well, I'm glad you had a great time in Korea. What do you hope viewers in Korea and also elsewhere, uh, what do you hope they take away from uh, your works and your exhibition? Um, I really hope that they find uh, the exhibition inspiring and um, not just the artworks, but also the um, idea that art is all around us. And I hope that the visitors and the viewers um, can slow down a little bit and really appreciate their surroundings. And maybe, you know, with their next cup of tea or coffee, they can just sit down and have a look at a slice of bread or a pile of napkins or um, wood knots in their table and notice something. And that would be the best gift for me. Yes, sometimes in this uh, busy lives of ours, we perhaps uh, forget to just pause and stare at things and let our minds wander uh, for uh, new creative ideas as well, I guess. Uh, well, people in Korea will be able to appreciate and enjoy your works at the CXC Art Museum in Seoul until March 1st. Uh, we are out of time, so we'll have to wrap it up there, Miss Stencil. Thank you once again for your time today, and we hope the rest of the show goes well as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Have a good evening. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea24. It's time for us to finish up the show with our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has joined us now in the studio. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. OK, so what's the first article that you have chosen for us? The first one I chose was Hwan dong article in the culture section of the Korea Herald. To commemorate the 20th anniversary of Pansori being registered as the UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage, a special performance was held. Pansori is the Korean traditional music genre. On Saturday, at Seoul Namsan Gugakdang, four Pansori singers performed. The interesting thing is, is that three of them were foreigners. Oh, OK, that is interesting. So then can you tell us a bit more about these uh, performers? Sure. Min Hae-sung, a certified trainer of Pansori, and her three students, Anna Yates-Lu from Germany, and Victorine Vlavo and Garance Kachard from France performed. They all came to Korea to learn Pansori. Yates Liu fell in love with the genre after watching a Pansori performance in London, so she decided to study culture through music and is now an assistant professor of Korean traditional music in Seoul. Mm. Vlavo is a translator who, like Yates Liu, 
fell in love with the genre when she saw a performance. And Kishal studied Korean history in university, where she found out more about the music. Okay, and they all ended up coming to Korea as well to yes. study the genre. Uh, what about uh, Min Hesong? You mentioned that is, she is a certified trainer. I did. Min has been holding pensori workshops across Europe since 2007. The teacher said that more foreigners become interested in the genre each year. According to the article, Min has also been working on translating pensori into French. So it will be interesting to see what happens in the future, whether other countries could adopt the genre themselves. Yes, it sounds like it would have been a very interesting performance to watch them perform uh, last Saturday. Perhaps uh, there will be more performances by them. And I think it would be interesting to check out to see, you know, uh, what kind of flavour they bring as uh, foreigners <laughs> as well, I think. Right, yeah. OK, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? I'm not sure if our listeners have seen the popular Netflix eight-part series Kaleidoscope, which follows a team of thieves attempting a heist worth seven billion US dollars. Well, Dong Sung-hwa sat down with an actress from the series, Tati Gabrielle, who plays a Korean character named Hannah Kim. The article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times is all about her connection to Korea. Yes, I believe the actress is of Korean and African-American descent, right? That's right. Gabrielle's mother is Korean, but she was adopted by an African-American family in Virginia when she was four years old. But her mother still tried to surround herself with Korean culture. So growing up, the actress and her siblings would eat Korean food, learn how to properly draw the South Korean flag, <laughs> and even wear the traditional clothing handbook during parades at the school. Gabrielle has also been learning to read and write Korean since she was six years old and is looking to become fluent within the next year. Yes, it's interesting. I, I feel the global popularity of uh, Korean content at the moment, such as uh, music, movies and dramas, comes at a good time for the actress as well, mm. who's been able to show that uh, Korean side in this uh, Netflix series. It has been good for the actress and her family, both personally and professionally. Because of the Korean wave, her mother has been able to learn more about Korea and reconnect with her culture. Mm. And the actress has said that her Korean ties have led to more acting opportunities as well, such as the series. She goes into more detail about playing a character with her actual ethnicity in the interview, and it's an interesting read. Yes, maybe with the success of this series, she could perhaps come to these shores uh, someday soon as well and get involved in actual uh, Korean dramas or films. I think that would be pretty exciting and pretty interesting to see as well. OK, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap it up for our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. So do join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.